ended up saving that client $96,000 a year in flood insurance. And that's when the light bulb went off. It was like, okay, I can provide a lot of value. This is a space that nobody knows exists. That's how I went from asking some questions to 30 people. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. My guest today is Brad Hubbard, founder and president of National Flood Experts, an engineering company that improves property value and reduces insurance costs by offering comprehensive and unique flood zone solutions for residential and commercial properties. Brad is a professional engineer, certified floodplain manager, and author of the book, Flood Money. He's appeared on NBC, CBS, Bay News 9, and has been interviewed on over 30 radio shows and podcasts as a flood expert. Congress and FEMA have also consulted him for his opinions on flood insurance. He established National Flood Experts after 15 years of experience in engineering and is a licensed insurance agent. He's currently a licensed professional engineer in many flood-prone states. Brad has built an amazing team of multifaceted problem solvers that help property owners across the country save money and have a better understanding of their flood risk. Brad, welcome. Hi, Carol. Thank you. My pleasure. So is this, you know, in, in talking about what your company does, saving money for people, is this really the biggest problem you're solving for your clients? Absolutely. Right now it, it is. It's, you know, they are, you know, stuck with, you know, a, a cost that they have to pay every single year uh, to ensure their, to ensure their properties from flood. And sometimes that's the case and it should be, and sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. So can you give me an example of, walk me through a, a process of how you do this? So um, a good percentage of our clients are multifamily. It's apartment owners. So mm-hmm. we'll have an apartment owner that may own 20 buildings in Virginia and they're required to carry flood insurance on all 20 buildings. Um, that may run anywhere from 40000 to $150,000 a year just to ensure that one risk, that one risk of flood. Um, so what we'll do is we'll take a look at what their what their property looks like from an engineering standpoint. We'll look at elevations. We'll look at flood studies, how the flood maps look in the area, um, how FEMA and the different models say that a flood is going to actually act in that area, and then see if those buildings really should be required to carry flood insurance. In the best case scenario, we'll get them all reclassified, take those 20 buildings, move them from a high-risk zone to a low-risk zone, mm. which eliminates the requirement to carry flood insurance mm-hmm. and they can still keep it if they want. It's just at a much cheaper rate. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, they go from paying 50000 or $100,000 in flood insurance to Whew. having to pay zero or a much wow. smaller rate. Yeah. That's really amazing. How do uh, people typically find, find out about national flood experts? They don't typically find out about us. We have to reach out to them. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a process that uh, really nobody knew about. Nobody knew that you could do this. They thought that, you know, FEMA says this, it, that it is what it is. It's the yeah. law. You can't change it. Right. So uh, I built a, a really solid team of outbound sales reps and who, mm. who really understand what we do. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. a lot of how we got started was reaching out and just calling up and saying, hey, let us take a look at this for you. It's, it's, there's no risk. Uh, more recently, we've partnered with a lot of insurance agents to where the insurance agent will actually pitch it to their right. clients for us and say, you need to talk to these guys. Um, right. And so we'll, we get a lot that way as well. But in general, we have to educate people because there's not a lot of knowledge out there about what we do. You know, it, it's interesting when you talk about insurance agents, Brad, because, you know, they make money by selling insurance. Yes. <laughs> so what's the, uh, what's the benefit to them? <laughs> to potentially have national flood experts come in and say, guess what? You don't need this insurance. Right, right. And and that was uh, something that we, we really 
banged our heads against in the beginning. Yeah. Um, I bet. What what it comes down to is there are insurance agents out there who truly have their clients' best interest yeah. in mind. The, the the good ones, the ones that you want yeah, insuring sure. your property, right? Yeah. They're the it's ones like that every care. Business. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And they would rather make their client happy mm-hmm. and lose a little bit of money um, because they know it's the right thing to do. Those are the best. Right. The other side of it is uh, insurance, just like a lot of industries, is very, very competitive. So mm-hmm. if you're able to find a solution for your clients yeah. that, you know, saves them tens of thousands yeah. of dollars, you create a little bit of loyalty and that retention factor mm-hmm. for them mm-hmm. uh, is sometimes more important than maybe losing a couple thousand dollars in commission. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and my, my own personal experience with insurance would, would prove that to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. You get an insurance agent that you know truly cares about your bottom mm-hmm. line, mm-hmm. then you, you stick with them. That's exactly right. And and I left an agent because he didn't do that. You know, right. Every year it was, sorry, your rates keep going up. I can't do anything. And then I yeah. finally found a broker who was like, yeah, you know what? He's, he's, he's working for the carrier. He's not working for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a really, really important point being customer centric. You know, that's one of the, I think that's one of the common denominators among all the founders that I interview is that they are super, super focused on being customer centric. I, I think it's the only way to really run a business yeah. right now, especially in the startup phase. It's one mm-hmm. of our core values. And, you know, it's why we've been successful is because mm-hmm. we don't make a dollar unless we actually help. And yeah, that's right. been our business model. Um, and all yeah. our clients know it and, and honestly love that about us. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. So, so you you have about thirty employees now, is that right? Yes. Okay. And tell me about the journey of growing your business from you know when you founded it to where you are now. Sure. You know, we started off no funding, bootstrapped the whole thing. Um, Good. Yep. After a few months and got a couple projects under my belt, hired on uh, one guy, and uh, he's still with me. Um, mm-hmm. And just basically kept trying new things. Will this work? Will this work? You know, brought in some people to help. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. Um, and then we started to get some people in the door who really had some talent. You know, we had a little bit more mm-hmm. money to where we could bring in some, Great. some better people and then just found some, you know, diamonds in the rough that really came in and changed how we sell, changed how we produce, changed the things that we're able to do. Um, and it just takes a couple of those people to really change the trajectory of, you know, where we're going because we, we've had really, really steady growth. Um, but then in the last three years, we've just rocketed we've gone from, you know, like 600,000 in revenue to almost 5 million in revenue. And it's just, you know, finding just that one thing, Hey, what if we did this partnering with insurance agents? We didn't do that before because of what you said in the beginning. And that was a roadblock that I was having. That was on me. That wasn't on the agents, but I had a hard time pitching to them because I thought they wouldn't want us. So once I was able to wrap my head around that side, it opened up a ton of new doors. So, you know, and then it became almost organic. Like, well, we have all of this. We need to have more people on to support it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you turn around and we're busting at the seams in the office and there's 30 people running around in a dirty mm-hmm. kitchen and laughing and all the, <laughs> you know, the fun stuff that comes with, you know, mm-hmm. 30 people in a space. Right. And, and you're, you're closing in on eight years old, right? Uh, we're closing in on seven. Yeah. We'll be seven, seven. Okay. in a months. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And you know, you, t- you, were, you were talking about how, you know, you were able to bring in better people. How did you, how did you do that? How did you figure that out? And along the way, what were some of the mistakes that you made and how did you pivot those mistakes to, sure. and, you know, and, and what did you learn from them? Yeah. Uh, early on, I would say that getting the right people in the door was luck. Um, just, <laughs> you know, you, you, you hire five people and yeah. you just got lucky on one. Um, yeah, right. And we made a lot of mistakes on hiring because I think mm-hmm. that, uh, one of my faults as a business owner, though I don't think it's necessarily a personality fault, is I always want to see the best in people. Mm. And even though they're not the right fit or may not be the mm-hmm. right fit, I want them to be and I want them to succeed. So I'll, I'll bring them on. And I, I that let that personality side of it uh, dictate the hiring. Um, 
and it, and it became more of a, do I like this person as opposed to, will they be awesome at this job? Right. And that was not the right way to do it. So we've changed right. that process now. Um, we have a full three-step interviewing process. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, the first interview, it, it is sort of that, do I like you? Are you a culture fit? And then it's more into the capabilities. And then we have a full panel interview with like six or so of the employees here to really make mm-hmm. sure it's a culture fit. Mm-hmm. Are there red flags or blind spots that I have? Right. Um, right. You know, things that I'm not seeing. And when you mm-hmm. get five or six people in there all giving an opinion, our success rate on hiring is so much better. Now we almost, we very rarely make what I would call a mistake on the hiring side since we've changed that process. Well, that's fantastic. Um, How long does this three-step process usually take to get through? We try to do it as quick as possible. So it's about two weeks to go from that first interview to the last Mm -hmm. one. You know, Mm -hmm. scheduling and things like that can be difficult if they're working, trying to, you know, figure out how to get all three in. But it's it's about two weeks is on average. Okay. And... uh, are you are you involved at the end of this, or sometimes you're involved, sometimes you're not? Does it depend? I'm always involved at the end. Okay. Um, it's something that I'm learning is probably my most important task is making mm-hmm. sure that the right people are in this building and, and working here. So I am, depending on the role, I might be involved early, but I'm always involved in that panel interview, the final, mm-hmm. you know, culture test, you know litmus test and the whole thing. I'm, I'm involved there. There, we don't hire anyone without me being a part of it. And I don't see Mm -hmm. that changing. Even if we're, when we're at a hundred or 200 employees, I want to always be a part of that. Okay, good. So you you said two things here. First is how do you define your culture and what makes it unique? Defining our culture. It's, it's, uh, we are a group of people, you know, are, we have our core values, which are your standard mm-hmm. corporate, you know, Hey, we operate with integrity and all that kind of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But really what we are is we're a group of people that want everyone else to succeed. The thing that I think is really interesting is we have a, a sales team of eight people. No, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, 11 people. And okay. typically in that kind of an area, or at least, you know, what they'll all tell me is you, you come from where you're competing against everyone. And there's a little bit of that toxic caustic, atmosphere right. because that person stole this and they can't win without mm-hmm. you winning that zero sum mm. type of a, a game. Uh, but Oof. when somebody makes a sale here, you know, there's high fives and there's cheering and, you know, it, I've got some of them that I call my cheerleaders that just, you know, are really, really celebrating that. But I think everybody here truly wants the rest of the people to succeed. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing in our culture. Um, that, that I think really sets us apart and, and everyone likes growing and likes winning and you know, not mm-hmm. necessarily winning from like a win lose standpoint, but that, that life journey, right? Like a win is, mm-hmm. Hey, I did better today than I did yesterday. Just that growth aspect of it all. How do you interview for that? That's tough. It is mm-hmm. tough. Um, and honestly, it's something that I'm working hard on now on, on identifying ways to ask questions and give scenarios like, Hey, this happened. How would you react? Um, I'm working on that right now because we're going through another hiring phase. We're going to bring on three or four more people in the next couple months. Mm-hmm. Sales people. Uh, no, actually or just this will people be generally. On the okay. Other side. Uh, good. A couple okay. engineers and a couple mm-hmm. production people, but okay. identifying those questions and those, you know, identifying like, here's an, here's a scenario. How would you react? It's, it's a difficult thing. So it becomes a feel. It's tough to really uh, mark it down like, you know, like, oh, they have this trait. It's, it's when you're having that conversation, how do they react? And we do ask a lot of questions of, you know, in a similar situation, how would you have done this? And you can kind of get an idea of how they interact with people, but it's a tough one. And it's something we're still working on very hard. Yeah, it really is. Somebody said to me a long time ago, facts tell and stories sell. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I think it's important, of course, asking questions is the most critical thing. And to your point, we have to make sure we're asking the right questions to really ferret out, you know, uh, is this person going to be fit or are they blowing sunshine up our skirt? Yes. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of saying, well, uh, tell me a story about fill in the blank. 
And then listening to the words that they use as they tell the story, right? I did this, or we did this, or they did this. See, you know, see how they they really speak exactly how they speak about that. And that's a that's you know for everybody listening is a, a this, you know one small way to start working on things like that. It, you know, you talked about uh, you know where you've where you've grown and and so on and so forth. Um, you also talked about being bootstrapped. Did you ever consider taking institutional capital, Brad, or, or, or will you, you know, trying to get from, as you're working to get from, you know, 30 to, you know, 300, for example, employees? When I started out, I knew nothing about business. Mm -hmm. So, uh, bootstrapping was the only option I had in my head. I, Mm -hmm. I would not have known how to pitch to an investor. I wouldn't have known uh, any of that. So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like I, I weighed two options. It was, you've got $0 in the bank account. You need to change that. So go, um, you know, if I was going to do it again, I would, I would probably look to investors and, you know, we've been lucky enough to where we could invest cash into another venture if we wanted mm-hmm. to. Um, because it, it makes it really, really hard. Those first couple of years, I wanted to yeah, quit sure. in my second year. Yeah. My wife Ugh. is amazing and she convinced me not to. Um, thank you, Allie. Uh, but, um, <laughs> Shout out to Allie. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving forward, yes, I would look into it. If we had mm-hmm. a really clearly defined market, like mm-hmm. we need to be in this and this will bring us from X to Y, but we can't get there without... 10 million in cash. Absolutely. Right. I would look out for, for an institutional investor that had the capital that could see our vision. You know, and, and listen, there are, are, are people out there that can teach you how to pitch. Yeah. I have a founder that I know that that's what they, he eventually hired. He hired somebody who this specifically was in this niche market to teach him how to speak in front of investors and things like that. And, you know, those, it's like anything I do the same. You go to the people who are expert in what they do. Sure. You know, rather than trying to figure it out on your own, because ultimately that's going to cost you more money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll figure it out, but you're going to fail five times first. And how much is that Right. And what's that cost you? Yes. Right. You know, what is, what, you know, if you look back, you know, what did it cost you when, you know, around the luck of hiring four people and only have 20%, 20% of those succeed? You know, what does that cost? And, you know, an opportunity costs. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'd be double where we are if I would have made better decisions early on. And your story, by the way, Brent, is not unlike so many entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, that's really ultimately what's behind this whole, this whole podcast is to help people learn to be better entrepreneurs and not to mistake, you know, not to make the mistakes that other people have made. Yeah. Yeah. Learning from your mistakes is one thing. Well, right. Learning from others is easier. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Tell me a little bit about your journey and your background to founding this company. Okay. Went to University of Florida and got a civil engineering degree. Came out Mm -hmm. and I worked in engineering for about 12 years and grew to hate it. Realized I did not like what I was doing. I did not like engineers Mm. um, (laughs) and just needed something different. Um, You know, I think a lot of it was I needed to be to feel like I was being compensated or rewarded for the work that I was mm-hmm. putting in for, for what mm-hmm. I could contribute. And you get in a big corporation and, and that just sometimes isn't the That's case. Right. right. And uh, my wife's cousin owned an insurance agency and he was like, Brad, you're good with numbers. You're good with people. Why don't you try insurance? And at the time I was like, anything, you know, yes, let's go. My arm to get there. <laughs> yes. So I went and I did that for a couple of years and really loved it. You know, engineering mm-hmm. is just solving problems. That all that's all yes. it is. And in civil, mm-hmm. you're solving big problems that might take months or years to to solve. Insurance, you're solving that person's problem and it might only take you a couple of hours. And it was mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of years, I, you know, my traumatic experiences had worn off and I started putting my engineering hat back <laughs> on and looking at it. And it's like the lender here is saying that this person is required to carry flood insurance. And I'm looking at it as an engineer saying, why? So I ended up just yeah, calling FEMA and said, hey, I've got this property. The lender is saying they need to carry flood insurance. I don't think they should. What can I do about it? And they said, well, if you know a professional engineer, they can do this and this and this. And I'm like, I'm a professional engineer. And she said, That's okay, awesome. do this. Three days later, I had them out of a flood zone and saved that client, I don't know, like four or $500 a year. 
I did that for like 20 clients that I felt were in the same kind of scenario. And then it was like, okay, I need to, I need to do this with more, you know, I need to do this full time. And then I got a commercial client. Um, and it was in Texas. I had no idea if I could work in Texas, no idea if I could do it commercial, just called up FEMA again and found out, yep, go for it. And ended up saving that client $96,000 a year in flood insurance. And that's when the light bulb went off and was like, okay, I can provide a lot of value. This is a space that nobody knows exists, Mm -hmm. but that's how I went from just asking some questions to 30 people. God, I love, I love, love, love to hear that because I've heard this so often from founders, right? I I mean, the first step in a successful company, building a successful company is actually finding a problem that needs to be solved. Right. And so often founders have stumbled into it exactly the same way you did. Yes. They like didn't go looking for a problem. All of a sudden it was like, it was like an epiphany. Yeah. Wow. This is a market and this needs market needs help. That's really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So, so, you talked, you talked about you, that you do all outbound marketing. How do you find your prospects? I mean, what, what's I, the, what's the strategy and process around that? The people that you're calling into. Sure. Uh, I actually have, uh, two people on staff that their only job is to develop leads. So they will pull up flood maps and they'll pull up property mm-hmm. appraisers and, and basically just start in an area and just work their way down. Who owns this building? Who owns this building? Who owns mm-hmm. this building? And then, taking those contacts and sort of spider webbing it out. You know, who's the insurance agent for this one? Who's the lender Mm -hmm. for this one? Um, You know, this guy owns this one building, but their company owns 30 different properties across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been the research team that we have and then just spider webbing contacts outside of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this guy owns this building, but the company owns 30 buildings. Who are you calling into? Typically, we're calling into whoever owns it, right? Whoever has the money behind it, because that's where the the real impact is. It's not the person operating it. It's not the person managing Mm -hmm. it. It's the person who financially is looking at that 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 net operating income, that NOI. How much how much is this property cash flowing for us on a year? That's the person Mm -hmm. that we're selling to because that's the number that we can change. And make it to where, you know, we can increase it, which increases obviously the the, the market value and things like that. But we're selling to the person mm-hmm. that truly owns the property. Right. Do you have any difficulty getting getting to that person? Oh, yeah. All the time. Okay. You know, gatekeepers. Talk about that. And especially yeah. when you're, you know, selling something that one, nobody knows about. Right. It so sounds some evangelizing, too good to be true. Right? Mm-hmm. And that word insurance pops up. And they're like, oh, they're selling insurance. It's like, no, we're not. We're an engineering firm. We just happen to be in the market where there's insurance as well. So Mm -hmm. uh, it is a difficult process sometimes to get to that decision maker. Uh, But I have an amazing team that is, they're they're so good at what they do. And uh, they've developed a lot of ways to, to get through it and talk to the right people. Right. And, and, you know, it's all about your approach, right? And I talk about this seems seems like on every podcast because it always comes up. We are so perpetually spammed. Yes. These days, emails and LinkedIn, and and even phone calls, but primarily via you know the written message, the written word. Yep. And you know how do you do outbound marketing in a way that you can actually get people on the phone and they will listen to you. Yeah, the the only thing that's had long term success for us has been picking up the phone and right. just being persistent. It may take yep. eight phone calls, but mm-hmm. um, we've had no success with the the written word, with placing an ad here or anything like that. It's picking up the phone, talking to people until they actually hear what we're saying mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. are you know willing to to give us a shot. Brad, are there any kind of like? Um conferences or things like that where, you know, you can get out and speak to speak at where people will actually say, wow, this is something we need to look at. Yeah, we've, I've actually spoke, I spoke at the National Apartment Association Conference in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, And that's typically where we end up speaking is um, 
that or investor uh, mm-hmm. conferences, right. real estate investment um, things. Yeah, sure. Right. So uh, DJ, my my sales director, he just spoke last weekend at a conference that was it was the multifamily something, but basically mm-hmm. it was a group of two hundred and fifty people who invest mm-hmm. in apartment complexes uh, or looking to or getting educated right. so that they can. Uh, mm-hmm. And those are the people, you know, again, that's that bottom line person. Mm-hmm. It's that owner. Yeah. So talking to the investor side is is the other spot that we've been able to get in with, mm-hmm. you know, conferences and things like that and, and speak. Have you, have you done the analytics on what, you know, what you're spending to be at those places versus, you know, your ROI and then, you know, getting customers? We do. I don't have them in front of me, Mm -hmm. but uh, our best return is on that type of, is being in the room with the money, being in the room with the investors. Um, It may take six months or a year to pan out because, Hmm. you know, if you only own three properties, they may not be in a flood zone. And then all of a sudden that fifth one you acquire, oh, Mm -hmm. who are those guys? Uh, So Mm -hmm. sometimes it can take time to to get to the end of it. But um, we do even if it costs us ten, twenty thousand dollars to be a part of that and to have, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't take a lot for us to 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 get that return back very quickly with how much we're able to save people. Yeah, that's really great. I'm really glad that you're that, to hear that. You know, that's one of the avenues that you're that you're. It's the only one that works for us. It is the only marketing right. avenue that works for us is mm-hmm. getting out in front of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's it's you know, and I have to imagine that once you've you know, gotten a client, they can then, then of course they're going to refer you to their buddy who's also in the business, right? There is a little bit of that. Not as much as you'd think, but there is definitely, you know what? Hmm. Hey, I'm a part of this group. There's 10 of us that meet and talk, you know, you need to tell them about it too. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's not as much of the, you know, Hey, call, you know, call Debbie. She owns this place. You know, that, that doesn't happen as much as I would hope. Okay. Is the bulk of your business coming from, you know, the multifamily, the, the commercial side rather than the residential side? Currently it is. Yeah, we're about yeah. 90% commercial okay. uh, with, a, with a high volume, probably 60% of that is multifamily. Okay. We are starting to move a little bit more in the residential side. It's going to change how we have to really build a team. It's, it's tougher to do outbound marketing to mm-hmm. residential, you know, you... you mm-hmm. We're, we're gonna. We're trying to become the doctors, and they know they have an issue, so they call us. So I we have that. to create that <laughs> whole scenario, which is hard, and it's going to take some work. But we're going to move into residential over mm-hmm. 2022 and 2023, just because the volume of people that we can help is it's staggering. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I love that you're using the analogy, doctor. You know, when I when I started in, in my business almost 30 years ago, that was one of the first things that. I learned as I was learning my business is, you know, you're the doctor. Yeah. Tell people, you need to tell people what to do. They will listen. Yeah. I I picked that up somewhere in some book I read and it was like, that makes sense. Yeah, of course it does. That's so great. What's the competitive landscape of your business? I mean, are are there any competitors out there for you? There really aren't. There are a couple Mm. of firms that will do a piece here or a piece there of what we do. But mm-hmm. direct competition, we we really don't have any. There's no other company that, you know, is a group of engineers that goes and tries mm-hmm. to solve this problem. They, you know, there are companies out there that will sell flood insurance. And then, oh, if you ask us, we'll also, you know, do a letter of map amendment for you. Or we'll send mm-hmm. a surveyor out there for you. But the fact that we do everything in-house, we do all of it, and we look so deep into everything, that we, <laughs> we really don't have competition, which mm-hmm. is nice, but it's also hard. Because mm-hmm. if you're creating a business with no model, I don't have a, a company I can go look at and be like, that's where I want to be in 10 years. We have to make it all up as we go. So there's more pros than cons, but there are negatives to that too. Yeah, sure. So over 50% of properties in the United States are incorrectly zoned by FEMA's flood zone maps. Uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that because I interviewed somebody um, probably maybe a month and a half ago, his podcast dropped, Kevin Stein, the co-founder of Delos Insurance. And what they're up to is uh, um, ensuring wildfire risk. Okay. And, and the models on wildfire risk are just as poor sure. <laughs> as what Probably you're dealing so. with. So 
Well, even more so, right? So, so that's the problem they're solving. But this sounds like it's very analogous what you're doing. I mean, you're not selling insurance, right? But you know, but it's still analogous to you're working with you know flood zone maps or models that are just bad. Yeah. So how are you? How you know why is that? Is it just typical government can't do anything right? <laughs> Because you know, or, think, or they just don't have any money to to fix it. Like, what's the what's the problem here? I, I think it's both of those things. It is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've got a government in charge of something that would be done better private. Um, right. <laughs> but the the other side is mapping the entire United States of America. Yeah, is a daunting task. You know, like sure. How is water going to act on every block and every road in the entire country? being accurate on like a, mm. a, a building by building basis, that's hard. That's, it's impossible. So that's, that's why they even have in their system a way for people to contest it, which is, you know, what we do because right. they know they can't get accurate down to that granular of a level. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the way that codes and things have changed over the last 20 years for building codes, that's why we're at 50% is because uh, you can't build a building two feet too low in a flood zone anymore. You, you're not allowed. So, right. uh, but the maps don't reflect, you know, the changes in construction, the changes in, you know, all the different improvements mm-hmm. that have been made over mm-hmm. time. Uh, it's, it's just too big of a task and, and there's not enough money for it. And it's just, it's, it's difficult, but yeah, we're, we're about 50%. I think it was 47. Our numbers are getting lower, but 47 is still pretty solid. Right. So that, that's at least something, right? So, how do you charge the customer? I assume it depends on the size of the project, yep. but what does that look like? We charge what we can save you. So, you know, like I said before, that mm. there's absolutely no risk to the client. If we're able to save you $10,000 a year in your flood insurance, our cost is $10,000. It's just one-time fee. Oh, interesting. Just what we can save you on that first year. Mm. Uh, and then you get the benefits from then on out. So, but if we can save you nothing, then you've just basically consulted for free. We consulted for free, and that happens. But uh, of course, it does. You know, we're we've gotten good enough to where you know our success rate when we say yes is over ninety nine percent. So wow. there's very few times where we tell someone we can get something done and then we can't. Well, you know what? And then you've at least done a good deed. Yeah. So and, you know, know, look at it that way. Is, hey, you're you're in a great situation. You're in the best situation yes. possible. But now you know. And there's some goodwill. Yes. Gotten out of that. That's a really interesting model. How did you come up with that model? Luck, I think, is probably it. That, that $96,000 <laughs> client, I asked a few uh-huh. people, you know, how should I, how should I charge for this? And, yeah. um, you know, I got the typical engineering hours and time and materials. And, and you know, it was like I, I didn't even. So I just came up and I was like, 25% of whatever I can save you. And okay. their, their answer to that was one time, or do we pay you that every year? And I was like, <laughs> right. <laughs> and when, when they said that, I realized I wasn't charging yeah. enough. You it was know? an epiphany. <laughs> right. That was another like light bulb moment. Like, Oh, okay. I love it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's worth more to them than what I think it is. So it was, it was understanding in, in talking to people who were in that commercial real estate ownership mind, you know, in that field to, to really understand the value of saving someone $20,000. It's not $20,000 a year. That's worth $400,000 on a sale. You know, when you start dealing with cap rates and things like that, it's, it's a massive value to them. So that's how we came up with it. So, so they start, you know, they start saving immediately, right. maybe, maybe not right out of the box because they've just paid you, you know, what they're saving in their first year, but it's gravy, everything beyond there. Yeah, within that first year, they're they're even, and everything mm-hmm. after that is just profit. Right, love it. So, if you look out, what's the vision you have for National Flood Experts, Brad? And and you know, where are you going over the next five to ten years? That, well, the the vision that I have is to grow this to where we have. It's funny because my my vision is more internal. My vision is having a mm-hmm. hundred employees in the office. And being able to enrich the lives of 100 employees here. That's mm-hmm. the, the vision I really have for the company. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of like, okay, so how do we figure that out? How do, what problems are we solving to be able mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. employ 100 people? Um, but we are looking at 
you know, getting into the residential market. We're looking at getting into the fire right. market. We're looking at how can we help right. communities deal with this problem as mm-hmm. opposed to just the, the landowners in there. What about, you know, mm-hmm. the city of Houston? What can we do for the city of Houston that allows them mm-hmm. to understand everything better uh, and create right. a product that we can help them understand flood better? So those are really the three things that we're looking at right now. And that'll push mm-hmm. us out five years, but that will push mm-hmm. us well over 100 uh, employees if we mm-hmm. really get going in those markets and submarkets. Yep. And, and do you foresee yourself then looking at potentially institutional capital to get there? It, you know, it, it, I always ask, you, you know, you're looking to get from point A to point B, right? Yep. Yep. You know, how, how long do you want it to take to get there? And are you willing to look at other options if you can get there in half the time? Yeah. And uh, you're, you're exactly right. That is when I would look at it. Say it's the yeah. community side. And we mm-hmm. realize that in order to be able to, to effectively help these thousand communities, we're going to need to invest $10 million into software development mm-hmm. to have a, to have something. Mm-hmm. I could wait four years to have that amount of cash, or right. I could, you know, find an investor and start today. So like you said, it cash just speeds up the process. It allows you to get from point A to point B faster. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that is where I would look at it. But only when it's that really specific scenario. I know that if right. I put this much, this much cash in here, it'll get me here and it'll get me there faster. Uh, just getting money to get money, which I probably get 10, email, 10 emails a week with of people course. trying to invest yeah, in the I company. It. And mm-hmm. it's like, I, I don't, we don't need the cash. We're fine on cash. But when we do have mm-hmm. that one specific problem that cash will solve, 100%. Mm-hmm. Do you have a board of directors or advisors? I do not. Mm-hmm. I do not. I, I started to put a board of advisors advisors together about two years ago and got busy and stopped. <clears throat> so uh, <laughs> my board of advisors is really about five people in the company and we just change our hats. Okay. You're not doing your job today. Mm-hmm. Today you are on the board of advisors. What do we need to do? To move forward and don't finger point. This isn't your problem or, or, or his problem or her problem. It is, is how do we move forward? And mm-hmm. I don't think it's the best way to do it, but that's the way we're doing it right now. Yeah. Well, and I'm not going to disagree with that because I think it's kind of like asking advice from, from your, you know, from your wife, for example, not that that advice isn't good, but she's, she's intimately, she knows you intimately. Um, you know, in a way that somebody who's a third party isn't attached to the result necessarily, right? Right. Isn't emotionally attached to the result. Yeah. And that's and that's exactly why I asked the question because, of course, should you look at institutional capital? There's gonna that's gonna be the start of your board of directors. Yep. Yeah, it would change a lot. Yes, it would. And and do you have any fear or concern about if you were to do that, them saying? Yeah, you've done a really good job to hear, Brad, but you're not going to take us to $100 million. Of course. Uh, yes, I, that, is, that is definitely, uh, you know, one of the results that could happen with that. I don't know if it's a, it's yeah. a, if it's a fear um, mm-hmm. because I've had those same thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. when, when I first started, I didn't see this company at 30 people in 5 million. <laughs> I, and, you know, every day I try to work on my belief lid to, to bring that up to, okay, mm-hmm. can we get mm-hmm. here? Yes, we can. Mm-hmm. And, and to, mm-hmm. you know, creating in my head to where it, it's, it's inevitable that it's going to happen as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure it all out. Um, mm-hmm. But I've had those same concerns about myself. I don't know if I'm the right person to lead this to a hundred million. Yeah. Very great. But I'm going to give but- it my best shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I work on that side too. Is yeah, and, and listen, a lot of that is mindset, right? Sure. Um, and and you know, it, it, neither of us is omniscient. <laughs> At least I know I'm not. So so I certainly can't say that you are or you're not the right guy to take you know to take your company to 100 million. And generally, when I think founders resist, it's it it it's really because of ego. Yes. I built this. You can't, you know, I don't want to be removed, but you know, if you're truly, if you're truly looking to build a 
customer-centric company and a talent-centric company, which it sounds like you're doing. Um, and, and, you know, you've talked a lot about the, the early on mistakes. You know, you like somebody and want to see them succeed. And that's not necessarily a great business, an effective business decision. Nope. Which doesn't mean you shouldn't like people, want them to succeed. <laughs> but if that's the only thing you're basing it off of, that's that's exactly you're exactly right. If that's yeah. the only thing you're basing it off of, of course, then you know what you're going to end up happening is you're going to end up SOL at some point. <laughs> yeah. But but I think that when you really start to look at where. You know, here's my vision for the company. This is what I'm committed to. You start to realize it's not like it's not like you not being the the head of the company, the CEO or the president, whatever you want to call yourself, the you know chief cook and bottle washer, right? Um, you know, you're not losing any of your investment. You still, you know, you still founded the company, right? You, know, you still own X amount of percentage of that, which which gets me thinking about. The people that have worked for you are you. Do you have profit sharing? Are you giving them equity in you know the hopes that you're going to build this to something? And you know, is there an exit strategy? You thinking about those things? I've thought about those things. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely, I don't have an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is fine. I have and, and I've, I've never done a a, a like straight regimented, I guess, a profit sharing type mm-hmm. plan. I try to be very generous. Um, mm-hmm. Some people would say that I am. Some pro- would probably say that I'm not. But um, <laughs> I try to reward people for the value they bring to the company. Uh, and I try to do that through bonuses and things like that and just random stuff. Uh, but we've never done profit sharing. I've looked into and may still do like a phantom stock type mm-hmm. uh, you know, program. Um, mm-hmm. But on the exit side, I... I'm still having fun and, you know, I'll go up and down and there are days where I'm like, I want to sell it tomorrow. Uh, and, but I, I think my fear in selling is I care a lot about the people around me mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I am very specific on how I feel they should be treated. And yeah. that's my fear about one being kicked out as CEO, mm-hmm. bring someone else in, even from an owner that they don't share the same values. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same on the, on the sales side. Yes. Eventually I will sell it. It may be five years. It may be 20 years. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, um, you know, there's no, that's why you build things is to eventually, you know, say goodbye to your baby. But, uh, (laughs) well, and, 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 and let me just make point out uh, for anybody listening who, who doesn't realize this, uh, you know, when you, if, when you choose to sell or if, when you choose to take on investors and if when they decide, you know, you, you have a conversation about, you know, we love you, Brad, but you're not the right guy to take us to a hundred million dollars. You know, you're going to stay on as, you know, founder and president. We're going to bring on a, you know, CEO. The reality is you can choose that. It's the same thing as when you're hiring people at looking at the cultural fit. And put that into a contract. If somebody says, well, forget it. We're not about to put that in. Well, then maybe this isn't the right buyer for you. Yeah, that's a very good point. I just re-interviewed somebody who, uh, in the insure tech sector, who is just a sweetheart. And, you know, their company was acquired by a large software company recently. And, you know, I talked to Bob a lot about this. And as I always do, if somebody's been acquired, you know, why did you make that decision? Sure. How, you know, how did you make sure that, you know, or all, did, did all your people come along? What, you know, what does that contract look like? Because if, if the acquiring company or investor or whatever that might be, you know, it could be a private equity firm, right? Uh, comes along and says, Hey, we want to, we want to acquire you. Uh, you want it to be a cultural fit, just like you do when you hire employees. Yep. I mean, at least that's what we would hope. You know, not everybody is the evil Facebook who just acquires companies to get and, you know, suck them up and, and, you know, who cares what happens to everybody else? Yeah. Yeah. I think, it, I think it, that's, I, I think that's the exception, not the rule, frankly. Which the, the evil Facebook side or the still caring? The side? evil Facebook side is the exception. It's not the rule. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, where, whereas they're just acquiring companies to, you know, get rid of them. Yeah. To eliminate the competition. To, 
That's exactly correct. You know, it's yeah. what they did with WhatsApp. It's you know, we could go on, but sure. You know, I don't I don't get me off on a tangent of you know all the <laughs> all the things I can't stand about Facebook and and uh, it's two leaders. But it, you know, the the rule it, what I see most often is founders who actually really care about what they built, their baby, and their people. So they want to ensure that those people do not get screwed. Yeah, I, I think that of all the CEOs that I know. That is the number one concern mm-hmm. yep. Uh, yep. if you're looking at an exit or even bringing on cash, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you spend your time when you're not at work. My family. That's it. I've uh, been married 15 years. I've got a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old who mm-hmm. play soccer and dance competitively, respectively. Oh, awesome. And that is every night. That is yeah. every weekend. So I am either here, I'm at a dance studio, or I'm at a soccer field. Um, that's pretty much it. And I, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. change it for the world. It is, mm-hmm. it is fun. I am a dance prop dad, you know, like I, <laughs> you know, that's me. I own it and, and I love every minute of it. So yeah, that's really, that's really fantastic. I used to golf. I still try yeah. to every couple, you know, yeah. three or four times a year. But, uh, when people ask me, you know, do you golf? I'm yeah. like, I used to. <laughs> yeah. You know, golfing is one of those things. I, I, I've had people ask me when I, when I uh, joined m- my club, um, that I joined as a social member, because, you know, working from home for 20 years for me, I, I needed to get out and socialize humans. more. Yeah, That's right. Humans, very important. And, uh, people would say, well, when are you going to upgrade your membership to golf? I said, well, either when, you know, when I, when I don't have to work full time, or I win the lottery (laughs) or when golf takes one hour instead of five or, you know, find a man who, you know, wants to, uh, who has enough money that I don't need to work full time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, or sell my own business because, you know, I'm very competitive (laughs) as I think most business owners are. (laughs) And, uh, if I'm going to, you know, I've got, I've got horses I spend a lot of time with and that's my priority. So, you know, for me to learn, for me to play golf, if I'm going to be any good at it, I want to make sure I can do it at least three times a week. Can't do that if I'm working full time. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, unfortunately, it's a common trait. Like I'm not just going right. to dip my toe in. I'm either going to jump that's in right. the pool or I'm not going to the pool. Yep. I'm, I'm, I feel exactly the same way. Uh, did the pandemic require you to adjust how you were all doing business? Did you, you know, work from home for a while? You know, you're in a, you're in a state that has no mandates. <laughs> Right. We are, uh, so, I'm curious look at that. it however you want. Yeah, no, uh, I, I would say that we're lucky to be in Florida. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, a lot of business owners had their hand, hand you know, here's what you have to do. Uh, we yeah. had a lot more freedom. Um, Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and we were home for about a month. Okay. Um, and during that time, we, we, you know, everything hit right there about March 15th. We had somebody that was supposed to start on April 1st. And she had reached out to us and said, Hey, look, I understand if you don't want to have, if you don't want to hire me, you know, everything's a little crazy. And I had a meeting and, um, basically sat down and was like, do we still want to hire this person? And I will never forget. I looked at him and I said, F it, hire her. And you know, that was, that was the mindset that I wanted to have going through it all was we're not going to turtle. We're going to push through this and get through. So we kept everyone home for about a month. Um, but then brought everyone back in. It's like the reason that we succeed is because we do it as a team. We do it together and there's, you know, uh, interaction and just, you know, for me, I think like I watched my kids' mental health just decline from March to June. Just they need to be talking to to their friends yeah, Mm -hmm. and and just to watch them become different people. It it was really sad. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want that here. And yeah. so we were all back in the office in May. Um, mm-hmm. And we've had, you know, little outbreaks of COVID here and there. And we try to handle it the best we can. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I wouldn't have changed it. It's, it's, it's the reason that we all still enjoy each other, enjoy being mm-hmm. here. And the reason we've had success mm-hmm. in the last two years is really because of yeah. that, I think. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, and that leads me to one more question before I wrap this up. Yeah. As you look at growing the company, you know, given the importance of you to having people around you, can you see yourself expanding outside of Florida and and having people working remote? 
Uh, actually, yeah, we we our two of our last three hires were remote. Um, Good. We had mm-hmm. never had anyone re- remote until October, uh, okay. and we hired one person in Tennessee and one person in Virginia Beach. This year, October of this year. Yeah, yeah, just okay. you know a month, month ago. So mm-hmm. uh, it, that just happened. Um, it's still not my ideal situation, but um, we're open to it. We're, yeah. we're it, it's kind of a we'd rather have you here, but yeah. I, I get that. And and what I've heard from so many founders when they've started to expand, and there's, listen, you know, like we talked about, right? There's pros and cons. Sure. Um, there is no panacea. And what, what, may end up, what I would assert will likely end up happening as you grow, you're going to realize that you, we do, you don't have the talent all around you. Yeah. You're going to, you, if you want the best talent, you're going to have to go find it. And, you know, and, and, you know, what does that look like? You, you know, once a quarter, you bring everybody in Yep. for, you know, two days, meetings, drinks, food, you know, that human stuff. That's right. The human stuff. And, and that's what I think a lot of companies are doing now. They just get together once a quarter and it, you know, gives them that need for, you know, human contact with the people that you're working with and really an opportunity to bond. So. So if somebody listening is saying, wow, this is a really interesting industry, I, I could I could see myself working for this company, what should they do? If you email me, you know, I'm, I'm our head recruiter and final say, <laughs> so uh, if you want to, yeah, you can email me and it's just brad at nationalfloodexperts.com and uh, I'm always looking for talent, even if it's from a mm-hmm. field that makes no, I mean, yeah. nobody has experience in my field. Nobody's going to be like, oh, I've got five years flood engineering consulting experience. No, you don't. So if I have good culture fit, the, the right people, yeah. we can train you on, mm-hmm. on what we do here. But yeah, I am always hiring, always looking for amazing people to come in and make, make me better, make us better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Brad Hubbard, founder and president of National Flood Experts. Uh, thank you so much for your time. This was a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Carol. It was fun. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.